0: Dr. Timothy Caulfield is a professor and Canada research chair in health law and science policy at the University of Alberta. Timothy may be the most well-known face of scientific myth busting. He is the host of Netflix, the user's guide to cheating death and the author of multiple bestsellers on science and misinformation, including relax a guide to every day to health decisions with more facts and less worry. The Cure for Everything, untangling the twisted messages about health, fitness, and happiness. And, last but certainly not least, is Gwyneth Paltrow wrong about everything? Well, Tim, I know at least one thing Gwyneth hasn't been wrong about throughout her career. Her role choice to play superstar Kelly Cantor in the 2010 movie Country Strong How the Academy overlooked her for an Oscar is borderline corrupt. Just my opinion, just asking questions. Tim and I confront misinformation, disinformation, science communication, and how it is all contributing to increased anxiety in our daily lives, and what we can do about it. And now I bring to you, Dr. Timothy Caulfield. Professor Timothy Caulfield, welcome to Confronting the Madness. It's a pleasure to have you here.
1: Uh, thanks for having me on. Looking forward to it. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. no, I just finished reading um, your book. I'm going to throw it up here. It's the latest version uh, entitled Relax. And I was fascinated by several of the chapters and their their themes within it. And so I encourage folks to check that out. What I did want to come on and talk to you about here today is really – your expertise around health information, public health information, the communication of science, and then what's more pressing today is around misinformation, the infodemic, and I'm hoping you can describe to us what that exactly means, and how that all relates to anxiety, that is permeating across our society, that's where I find it most troubling. I think you, I disagree a little bit on some of your positions as it relates to the notion of misinformation and how we address misinformation. And I'd, we can maybe get into that, but first tell us a little bit about who you are, your, your background, what you're currently doing at the University of Alberta, and then we, and then I'd love for you to dive into the notion of what, what the Im- infodemic is.
1: So uh, I'm a Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy at the, at the University of Alberta. Uh, really broadly speaking, I, I study health and science policy, and um, that is taking me um, in the direction of a empirical and, and sort of policy analysis of how science is represented in the public sphere. So some of my early research was around you know science mm-hmm, hype, mm-hmm. which is ironic because a lot of my a lot of the people that are, you know, don't like some of my positions. Think I'm like all in on big pharma and the science, uh, comp. Let's call it the big right. science complex. Which is kind of, you know, when I hear that, it's so ironic because I have built a, you know, big part of especially my early career around critiquing the scientific in- infrastructure, critiquing how science is funded, critiquing science hype, and so we did. We've done a lot of research around mm-hmm. around those things, including on how, um, you know, industry involvement, commercialization can skew the direction of research and have an adverse impact on how it's portrayed to the general public but but that's sort of taken me um, my career towards exploring things like misinformation which I've done for years and years and years now um, and a lot of my you know my more popular books have have focused on that but we've done a lot of empirical research on that on that also looking at misinformation in the context of of social media and and um, we have a we've I've got several research grants looking at misinformation in the context of mm-hmm. COVID, for example, and, and you know, very recently. So a lot of my research, and I'm very, very mm-hmm. passionate about it, as you, as you may know, is around fighting, fighting misinformation. Well, we know that, yeah, and, and I think there's a growing body of evidence to back this up, that it does incredible harm. I mean just incredible. I mean, in fact, this isn't gonna sound like hyperbole, but I, I think it's fair to say that it is one of the greatest challenges
0: mm-hmm. of our
1: time. I know I really that sounds like hyperbole, but when you think about the chaotic information environment that we live in and the degree to which information just permeates every corner of our life, um, which was one of the goals of the book, right, is to really to explore how that that's true. Um, it's not an understatement to say that misinformation is one of the greatest uh, challenges of our, of our time. and you know It has an impact on politics. It has an impact on, on the research agenda. It has an impact on our economy. And absolutely, absolutely, it has an impact on our health. And I think it's fair to say that misinformation right now during the pandemic, it's killing people. And it has killed people, that, without mm-hmm, a doubt, mm-hmm. like without a doubt. Um, and so, yeah, it's 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 a real problem. The good news is and I like to be a good news person is I think we have a growing body of evidence that tells us um, how to how to fight misinformation. And so we're also trying to do that. I'm part of a big initiative called #ScienceUpFirst. Up First. I'm one of the co-founders and it's it's aimed at fighting misinformation where it resides, which is largely mm-hmm. social media. Mm-hmm. This is largely a social media phenomenon. Yes, it comes. misinformation comes from everywhere, but. Uh, I think that that's one of the, the things that makes it unique today and one of the reasons it's so problematic right today is, is because of social media. So our, our initiative, Science Up First, it's on Facebook, it's on Twitter, it's on Instagram, we're on TikTok, and, and we're trying to create independently um, vetted, creative, upbeat, we, uh, don't be negative is one of our goals... <laughs> um, uh, content that can be shared broadly because, be, you know, shareability is really, really important. Um, and we try to have a whole, di- you know, diverse voices uh, involved in the conversation. So, yeah, I, I study misinformation, the nature of it, and I study how to fight misinformation. And hopefully I'm part of a, a terrific team that is, is trying to make yeah, it.
0: Yeah, that's, that's awesome. And I I definitely don't disagree that misinformation or the lack of quality information is one of the most pressing concerns of our time and has so many negative consequences. One of the things though that I'm interested in is, who is to blame for the creation of this misinformation ecosystem? And where I struggle a little bit and I'm interested in your thoughts are, I have family members, you have family members, friends, who share stuff on Facebook, for example, and they got some weird idea somewhere, right? And they didn't really do any secondary research. They didn't read any opposition opinions. They just, it's confirmation biased. They share it and then it gets perpetrated through their friends and whomever. But the thing that I struggle with is around when institutions, and I'm talking about institutions like the CDC or the World Health Organization or Anthony Fauci or other political leaders where the politicization of science becomes a bit murky for me. And in your book, and this is what I don't think some of these folks have done enough, is in your first chapter, you're talking about fluoride and whether or not it's, it's good in drinking water for your, your teeth. And I, have, I, have, I agree with what you're saying in here. But at the end of it, you say, though research continues and we should regularly revisit the science... When it comes to an assessment of the benefit and safety, the research is pretty darn consistent. I I do not think that the leaders of our institutions have, have prefaced information with respect to COVID that way at all. And that's, I think, a cause, a great deal of cause around when they get something wrong, and they've been very dogmatic about, you know, a vaccine will not cause transmission, and then it turns out it will. Like, that's a material statement that impacts the decisions of individuals to make a choice and we don't need to debate I'm vaccinated my family's vaccinated the whole vaccination conversation not that interesting in this, in this conversation for me but how do you think about that when an institution says something that is either misinformed or a lie I, I think that's more harmful than when somebody whose who's livelihood you know depends on misinformation like Alex Jones or Breitbart News or whomever. There's, there's, there's some different scales there. Yeah, so lots of
1: impact there. Uh, so first of all, unfortunately, we know that the misinformation coming from Joe Rogan and from these does do real harm. It does incredible harm. Right. It does incredible harm. So we, you know, it's hard to believe that people hang their hat on Joe Rogan and on Alex Jones and on Gwyneth Paltrow and on Aaron Rodgers. But we know that the misinformation that emanates from those sources has a huge impact. And it's, there's been a lot of studies that have shown that empirically demonstrated that these voices can have a huge impact. And it's not that they trust Joe Rogan or or, you know, people always joke back to me, which, oh, he's a comedian, lighten up. Right. That's not the point. Right? They're a megaphone, and they're enabling and, and legitimizing the misinformation that that is associated. they they're the megaphone. Mm-hmm. But I absolutely agree with you that the science communication early days and even recently has been less than ideal. And, and in fact, I wrote a piece for the Royal Society. Of Canada was the co-author on this piece that that was the the point that you know we say right in there is that public health agencies have got to learn not to be dogmatic because it's almost always a mistake to be dogmatic about scientific conclusions because science evolves but there's something qualitatively different and the mask thing is often raised probably someone brings up the mask thing in my life every day (laughs) and somehow they think it's a mic drop and I'll get to what I mean by that they think it's a mic drop thing You know, um, early days in the pandemic, um, there were, I I know you know this, but I'm just sort of mapping out the narrative here, right? Early days in in, in the pandemic, there were um, scientifically plausible reasons why we shouldn't recommend mask, mask wearing, right? So this is February, March 2020. So that's why the World Health Organization, the CDC, the National Health Service in, in the UK, the public health agency of Canada all came to the same conclusion. Don't recommend mask wearing. Now, it's often framed by by the deniers as they were lying to us because it was a supply issue. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a, but that's not the case. Right. There were scientifically plausible reasons touching your face, wearing it wrong, behavioral compensation. In fact, there were a couple studies that, you know, poorly done studies, but a couple studies that said these were plausible concerns. Very quickly, a body of evidence started to emerge um, that said that masks are helpful. In fact, I think the mask story is fantastic because it's a really good example of how you always should turn to the body of evidence, right? And, and um, you know what does the scientific consensus say? What does the body of evidence say? Because you know masks are actually hard, still, it's hard to study it well, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. It's hard to create these clinical trials that give you really definitive evidence. You come at it from as many methodological directions mm-hmm. as you can, and you build up this a body of evidence and now we have you know a number of really good systematic reviews that tell us that tell us that masks you know they all point in the same direction right that masks are are helpful early days um the public health agencies in canada were are in canada and 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 around the world were too dogmatic in their language around masks that is qualitatively different than someone like alex jones mercola uh, robert kennedy jr lying about, uh, about vaccines, lying about supplements, lying about ivermectin in a way that fulfills the political agenda. These individuals, you know, uh, whether you're talking about the World Health Organization, CDC, were doing a bad job translating what the science said. As I've argued in many pa- papers, and including that Royal Society paper, we need, to, uh, bring the, we need to say what the scientific uncertainty is, and we need to say based on the available evidence we have right mm-hmm, now, this mm-hmm. is the recommendation we're going to make. The science, science could change uh, in the future, uh, and when the science changes, our, our recommendation will change. As I often say, changing your mind based on science uh, is not flip-flopping. It's a badge of honor. <laughs> you know, it's exactly what you want science-informed public health authorities to do. So I think you know it, it is that's a science communication uh, problem. And the other thing I think is really, really important to emphasize. Um, and you know, though, I call them deniers as sort of the broad, <laughs> broad category. Give these different names: anti-vaxxers or conspiracy theorists. One of the things I find frustrating is they often say, "Oh, the you know the science is uncertain on these things." Absolutely. I don't know a single individual who did not, you know, in the scientific community disagrees with 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 that. But what's frustrating is they're not arguing about stuff that's scientifically questionable. You go to like the Joe Rogan show with, you know, Robert Malone mm-hmm. and Peter McCullough or you know, the stuff they're talking about is demonstrably wrong. Right. This isn't like how much immunity do we get from Omicron and how long lasting is that immunity? Mm-hmm. And, you know, what kind of immunity do we get from vaccines in the context of Omicron? You know, where we have a robust scientific conversation, they're talking about they're lying about excess deaths. They're lying about ivermectin. They're lying. They're saying stuff like, you know, there are actors that are playing sick people in ICUs. Uh, they're lying about the adverse effects of vaccines or saying vaccines caught stuff that is just clearly wrong you know this isn't the kind of thing where we have to say oh let's have these two sides of this conversation we need to have that this is just stuff that is clearly long and it's and it's being pushed to satisfy a particular agenda so absolutely the other thing is uh, i want to emphasize sorry no I it no I asked, long, but it's a great I asked. it's a great question um, uh, the other thing i i think that it's it's really important to recognize is the other thing that the deniers often try to do is create a false dichotomy right Or so the false dichotomy, they do it all the time, full lockdown versus open things up, which has never been the case. Mm -hmm. Every, you know, that's just one example of a Mm -hmm. false dichotomy. It's never been the case, right? It's always been that um, uh, jurisdictions around the world have tried to strike a balance, right? And some have done better and they've tried different things. Everyone, every jurisdiction has tried to strike Mm -hmm. a balance. It's never been full lockdown versus your way. The other, Another really common false dichotomy in mine is you'll hear people say, both sides are spreading misinformation. And the, the key there is to try to create this false balance between, well, maybe ivermectin works and you got masks wrong, right? It's very, very different, right, from you know, getting science communication wrong in an effort to use science to better uh, public health versus spreading clear misinformation. You have to also remember a lot of this misinformation comes from state actors whose goal is to create information chaos. You know, there's been some mm-hmm, studies around mm-hmm. hydroxychloroquine that has suggested that there's some studies around around vaccination misinformation that it has shown that. Um, and the other thing we need to recognize is that kind of misinformation, the stuff that is demonstrably wrong, you know, not up for, kind of, you know, flat earth kind of stuff. It's having an impact. There have been studies that have shown that there's almost a comp- direct you know, complete correlate, hard to study this well, correlation causation, but it, almost a complete correlation between those who believe misinformation and those who are against vaccines, right? Um, the, you know, the Venn diagrams, they overlap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that wasn't always the case, right? You know, I think early days, there were people who had questions mm-hmm. about vaccines, and they were hesitant for a whole bunch of, you know, sort of, I want to learn more, right? Or, or there were equity issues, there were access issues. But now it's, you know, uh, ideology, misinformation, and hesitancy, those three Venn diagrams, they line up.
0: Yeah, well, th- well thank you for answering. My, my wife always says that I ask four questions and one question, so I appreciate you being <laughs> able to uh, dissect those for me and answer them in a coherent ways. I wanna quibble a little bit on three words here. One is the word lie, then there's the word misinformation. And then on when you talk about science, you, I, I don't hear you use the word misinformation when it comes to the scientific institutions. And I want to push back a little bit. And Like, for example, February 2020, Tony Fauci dismissed the use of masks. He says, if you look at masks that you buy in a drugstore, the le- leakage around that does not, does not really do much to protect you. Then later on, he said, I just wanted to make sure that masks were used as a symbol for people to see that that's the kind of thing you should be doing. And to me, that's classified. That would classify that as misinformation. That doesn't come why because that doesn't come across to me as so. He's dismissed masks as being scientifically beneficial for an individual in February 2020. He's fast forward to say, I still don't think they're beneficial, although there's a there's a psychological use for them in society to show that. I, as an individual, am virtue signaling that I believe that COVID is real.
1: Yeah, so that's, I, I don't see that. First of all, there was, a, there was a lot of discussion, even in the ethics community and the po- science policy community, about this idea of solidarity that would be associated with with wear, wearing masks. And we've seen that in mm-hmm. other communities and other, other contexts. Uh, that, he's being transparent. He said, I still don't think the science doesn't work. This is why I think you should wear it this was still at the time i think there was like marchish where uh, the science was still uncertain so he, and on the contrary to being misinformation he's being it's being transparent uh, on why he's recommending wearing the mask he's basically saying wearing the mask for virtue signaling which is which is an interesting point of view now the other thing with the definition of uh, that's not misinformation that's being transparent as to my reason for recommending it and the other interesting thing of course is the definition of of misinformation um, as you can imagine there's this really broad literature on that and those who do science communication talk about this all the time um, and uh i sometimes get uh frustrated with my my pande- uh my sort of picky uh academic colleagues who say well there's there's misinformation then there's disinformation then there's fake news and, <laughs> yeah. you know, breaking it uh-huh. down so i kind of use misinformation and to be honest with you they're right. Um, right, right. <laughs> I use misinformation as sort of an umbrella mm-hmm. term, right, mm-hmm. um, to talk about the field, right? Because Beca- I do think that there, you know, there's, as you know, I know you, you know this stuff too, but uh, there's dif- disinformation. So disinformation, you know, I put it on, on a long continuum, right? Mm-hmm. So you can put disinformation mm-hmm. on a continuum and on one end of the continuum. You have individuals that are you know, fully aware that this is misinformation and they're spreading it to fulfill an agenda, maybe even trying to for the purpose of doing harm. right. They know it's a lie. Yeah. Yes, yes. Like they know it's a lie. D- D- yeah.
0: Disinformation and is a lie. As yeah, it, they, yeah.
1: they know it's a lie and they're spreading that. And I think that that some of the things that Peter McCullough and um, uh, uh, Malone, Robert Malone said, I, I categorize those things as lies because. They must know. They must know the literature. They, you know, they they must know. They must be aware of what they're saying is is not is not true. Other things that they said, I you know, I would you know categorize more broadly. And um, but you have the lies, and then you move along, and then you have uh, people that are maybe selling products mm-hmm. that are aren't based on on good science. You know, we've done a lot of research around the concept of immune boosting, for example, and how that's being pushed mm-hmm. on on mm-hmm. social media and on the internet um and and i think there you probably have actors that are you know they probably know it doesn't work mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's kind of disinformation but maybe tom brady really does think that his supplements boost your immune system you can't boost your immune system okay. um, <laughs> so that so
0: that immune boosting tea i had last night is not a good use of my <laughs> <laughs> no.
1: I think I think the concept of, mu- of immune boosting is hilarious because you don't want to boost your immune system, right? You know that's anaphylaxis, right? Right. Right, an right. Autoimmune right. disease. It's it's absurd <laughs> on so many levels. Um, but you know, but it, it is interesting because you wonder, you know, does Gwyneth Paltrow really, you know, think it? Maybe she does. Mm-hmm. Maybe she's, you know. So then you move a little further along, and you have I think maybe Aaron Rodgers would be in this category, right? Where they, it's almost like this hubris that they have, this willful ignorance of, of reality, um, you know, where he believes ivermectin works, mm-hmm. where he believes these things cause infertility and, you know, um, and then you move a little further along that continuum and, and you do get to individuals that are, uh, are just trying to do the best they can. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. they're trying to, you know, f- navigate their way through this chaotic information environment, and they're sharing misinformation online. And there's a lot of research that tells us that that's what happens. There was an interesting study that came out early days in the, in the pandemic from Oxford that found that you know, 20% of the misinformation that's circulating comes from celebrities, comes from prominent individuals. So that has, mm. you know, that's where the origin is. Um, but then 69% of the misinformation circulating on social media is us, us sharing the stuff from the celebrities. Sorry, what so, was that, 60%? Sixty-nine percent, <laughs> so I mean that really shows you how it's a top-down, right, bottom-up right. phenomenon. Yeah, that's right? interesting.
0: So, so, okay, I want to I want to do another Fauci pushback when he was talking about the efficacy of the vaccines, and he said, "I was saying herd immunity would take seventy to seventy-five percent." Then, when newer surveys said sixty percent of more would take it, I thought I can nudge this up a little bit. So he was he wasn't basing the nudging up on the science, he was basing it on an opinion poll on how individuals would respond if he were to say herd immunity would would require a higher percentage of individuals with the intention that vaccines would then increase, vaccine uptake would increase. Again, to me, that's a form of misinformation.
1: So look, I, I'm not going, I, I actually don't know the, the details behind the scenario you're, you're describing, um, but I, I must say it, it's interesting because if we went back two years, right, two years ago, and you look at the, the criteria of what you're supposed to do when there's a crisis and you want to have powerful, you know, impactful public health messaging, Mm-hmm. Um, it is to be clear <laughs> to be unambiguous you know these these yeah, really yeah. Mm-hmm. and i think that's wrong i think something that we've learned from the pandemic is you can't you've got to be honest about what the science actually says and a lot of the critiques of people like fauci or the public health agency of canada i, I get it daily you know mark daily someone says this to me is because of the evolution of science, mm-hmm. like there, you know, the science was different before, like, you know, around transmission, for example. I, I know you know this, but I'll say anyway, early days, um, the vaccine, there was evidence that the vaccines did slow transmission. And by the way, there was a, an analysis that just came out from the UK that even with Omicron, vaccination slows transmission. Does it prevent transmission? No, you know this, <laughs> you know, no vaccine mm-hmm. is perfect. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. an absurd argument to argue that if it's not perfect, it doesn't. we shouldn't use it. There is simply no health intervention almost ever <laughs> that, that is, would satisfy that criteria, right? I mean, the seatbelt cliche really does work here, right? Telling people to smoke really does, not to smoke, really yeah. does work here, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. it, telling people not, these interventions aren't going to say you're never going to get lung cancer, you're not going to have a car accident and die these are interventions that have a meaningful impact right so for early days for fauci to represent what the best science said about the vaccines and what the history of vaccines and what we know from vaccines is entirely legitimate entirely legitimate and to say that because then that's what the knowledge was around vaccines and now and then he told he went on news and said this is what the knowledge we have about vaccines are and then in the future well, the, the the knowledge has changed. You told me that vaccines were going to prevent transmission at X level. It turns out they're 30% is completely disingenuous because of course the science evolves. Every year we have a new flu vaccine and that flu vaccine has a different level of effectiveness. You know what? It was a miracle these vaccines were 90% effective early days. That was a miracle, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And yep. I don't think that's said enough. And now we're getting all this revisionist history. You can tell I'm, I'm getting worked up a little bit saying... Which drives me nuts, you know, that somehow uh, the vaccines didn't work. The vaccine saved hundreds of thousands of lives, right? And to somehow suggest otherwise is infuriating. But we're seeing that all the time, right? Mm-hmm. To suggest that masks and the lockdowns did nothing is absolutely infuriating. I think the area where we're going to see the most movement in literature is around the lockdown interventions. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. But that's good. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to revisit what mm-hmm. worked. What didn't work? I think there's emerging evidence. I want to be careful not to be dogmatic <laughs> that the borders closures, not real sure how effective right. they were in, in different contexts. Um, when do we do the school shutdowns? How about what we learned about being outside, right? You know, mm-hmm. early days, you wore your mask everywhere. I, and I think we're learning that, you know, being outside is almost magical. Yeah, <laughs> be careful yeah. not to overstate yeah. it. I want to be careful <laughs> yeah. not to overstate it because who knows what science you, you, is the you, did,
0: you did say almost.
1: But, but the bottom line is that w- we're going to learn and we're going to be in the... Hopefully, we're not going to have to have <laughs> more... Uh, uh, events like this, but we're going to know more and we're going to be able to revisit to get a sense of what we did. And the other thing is that's going to inform that cost benefit analysis mm-hmm. we do around things like closing schools. You know what? Yes. Where do, where do we get the biggest bang when there's a, a real public health crisis emerges?
0: D- yeah, because I think someone at John Hopkins recently published a study around. It It was. It was. Oh, that I, it study was,
1: was so terrible. This is the 0.2% study. A really good example, right? So what happens is you get that study, you know, written by Ronald Reagan's former economic advisor. Uh, is that who it was? Yeah, and he puts it under the Johns Hopkins, not peer-reviewed, and it gives a name of it that, that's similar to a peer-reviewed journal. Mm-hmm. Um, it says 0.2%. They he says it's a systematic meta-analysis, and it makes it look like he looked at a ton of studies Then he does this weighting. He there's three of them, I think. They do this weighting on on the studies that they looked at. They gave like a 98% weighting to one study in a uh, in a predatory journal, and then came to the conclusion that it was point you know that lockdowns only had a 0.2% impact. Uh, There have been you know this study has been completely you know critiqued. uh, (laughs) It's everywhere. Still not peer reviewed. And despite, in addition to that, there is a huge body of evidence out there, already great systematic reviews, meta-analysis, in fact, I, I posted one today, that tell us that, that lockdown strategies uh, do work at various levels, you know, hard to study well, but there is a pretty robust body of evidence that is completely different. So it's ironic that we have this body of evidence, this weight of evidence over here, right? And then we have this one peer, not peer-reviewed study over, which clearly seems to be having an ideological agenda and it gets a huge amount of attention, huge amount of attention. It gives you a sense of the noise that we have, that we're up against. But
0: can I ask you about that? Because, and I hadn't looked into the study, but one of the things that, so there's, there's various levels of sophistication that an individual will um, delve into with regards to trying to figure out objective truth, right? As a, as a lay person, Right you're a subject matter expert, you're an academic, you do this as a profession. I would consider myself a lay person that's probably you know, a little bit more knowledgeable than the average about how to extract information. And one of the ways that I do that when I don't have time is I look at, and I, I obviously didn't do this second layer, which I, so John Hop, Johns Hopkins University, okay? You publish an article from Johns Hopkins University my my baseline would be, okay, that has X percentage, a degree, percentage, of, credibility to a degree it, yeah. of credibility to it, right? Yeah. yeah. And then when that spreads you know, broadly through whatever social media or whatever, okay, that's my second data point, right? My third data point would have been, had I cared enough to research it, was, well, who is the guy that's writing the article? And if you would have told me that prior to, I would have been, okay, then my my confidence interval goes down, right? But how are we supposed to trust academic journals now when and, and academic institutions when that's being allowed to be released under this guise of, you know, because when people hear meta-analysis, first of all, nobody will know what that means, but if you do, you're like, okay, that means you've taken a bunch of different research and you've compiled it all together and you've done a really good job of assessing a big data set. Right. And so that should give you more confidence. Right. And then all this. So it is another
1: example of that. Right. Yeah. So, you know, we, we published a study. Well, that I wanted you know, to talk about that, that too. How the great Barrington declaration was portrayed was, uh, portrayed in, in the popular press. And it's a really good example of false balance. Right. But the, there's the great Barrington declaration. And, and again, that was, as you probably know, uh, you know, really came out of a uh, a right wing think tank right but we didn't we don't hear about that we hear about Harvard Stanford and i can't remember the other other place that you know there was three three mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. yeah i don't know but um, yeah j j Batatara and, and uh, uh, uh yeah yeah
1: immediately critiqued right by by the public health world and and but but you're 100% correct yeah, yeah. you know i i think that um, but for the fact there was a pandemic and that so much ideology has been attached to the things that are going on right now, what would normally happen, and, and what's kind of happened with that that Hopkins study is, the academic community. There's this critique that happens within the mm-hmm, academic mm-hmm. community, right? And then and then um, there are, it's placed in its proper mm-hmm. proper context because look, in the academic world there is always good studies and bad studies and retractions and you know that happens all the time it, it, right. science yep. is hard and it's a mess mm-hmm. right? it's a mess right and that's why you have this body of evidence that emerges <laughs> right and, and um mm-hmm. and that's what normally happens but 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 unfortunately with our, cer- our our current information environment this cherry picking can happen right and and so people cherry pick these studies that they they like and then they mm-hmm. point to the mm-hmm. uh individuals involved and um it, it takes off and, and you get the what it's called zombie papers and they're very the wakefield study on autism and vaccines you know the lie the va- is one of the best examples of a zombie paper it, it lives mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. it lives on even though it's been retracted it's been denounced etc uh, etc cetera, et cetera. um and that's because of the information environment that we live in and the incentives that we have. And the other thing that happens, I think, is that that people build careers, academics, on being a contrarian, right? So you mm-hmm. have these contrarian mm-hmm. with the Jordan Peterson. You right. can go yeah, down the yeah, list yeah. of yeah. individuals. And I, I don't want to say I can read their minds and why they do this. But I think part of it is, you know, you just build this huge brand based on being a contrarian and i can list that uh, you know jordan peterson's one of the you know best examples of it uh but there are there are others the best way to respond is almost always the body of evidence right you say here's the body of evidence on, on this point um
0: mm-hmm.
1: right here's a good a good um good moment to talk about the galileo effect because that's the other thing i hear i hear constantly Some <laughs> someone will say well galileo was, people said galileo was wrong right so, the, so there are Peter McCullough's right, too, right, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Completely, yeah. first of all, not many Galileos in human history. One, number, one. number two, this is not the same situation, right? That is not a conversation mm-hmm. stopper, right? That is not mm-hmm. a conversation mm-hmm. stopper to say, oh, let's look at Galileo, mm-hmm. you know, look at ulcers that people used to think they were caused by stress. Look at plate tectonics, right? Those are not conversation stoppers. Because in all of those cases, it was, you know, it was resolved by science, right? It wasn't, and... In uh, Galileo, he, he wasn't, it wasn't like scientists fighting. It was Galileo in a political stew, right? So it's a complete misnomer to use you know the Galileo effect. but it's a very unfortunately, it's a very, very effective method for spreading misinformation and, and silencing those who are trying to fight misinformation.
0: So just, I got there's too much I, I gotta to touch on because even I want to put a pit in the Jordan Peterson conversation because I'd love to talk with you about him. Uh, another time, because I do. <laughs> Anyways, whatever. I'm not going to share my opinion on that right now. Um, but w- just back to the Great Barrington Declaration for a minute. It's a couple things. One, for me, again, as somebody who sits layperson plus, let's call me a lay person plus, if I can be so so bold in saying so. You know, I read the Great Barrington Declaration when it came out, whatever that was, 18 months ago, and to me, I thought, well. That makes sense. You know, protect the vulnerable. Let it burn. <laughs> Let the people that have low risk. Well, well, I don't even think it was that. I think it was protect those that are at most risk so that those that aren't at risk can still continue to live a normal life. And it was portrayed in my opinion in that light that it's every man for themselves, right? You know, you're and and then the other thing that bothered me about it, which came to light, was that the email from Francis Collins to Tony Fauci effectively was a political and a media tactic saying, you know, we need to shut these guys down. So how are you going to um, denigrate them and their academic credentials? And again, I thought that was it was such a blurring. Of, and, and and I don't even want to talk about the Great Barrington Declaration, whether or not it's right or wrong or whatever. It's, it doesn't matter. But it's, it's the way in which um, institutional actors, leaders respond from a political perspective that I think in part makes people like Joe Rogan as famous as he is because he his brand is to say, I'm going to share a, an unfiltered opinion of what I think and I have no biases. And I'm not saying that is what it is, but I have no biases and I'm going to bring forward people that are going against what the legacy institutions are saying, and that includes the media. And so, I got to part. I got to park the Great Barrington Declaration because you got to go. But let's talk about let's talk about the media for a second, and and the role that it's played throughout COVID. And you know, I'm just going to give you an example. Rachel Maddow on uh, MSNBC again, taking the information that she received. From the science at the time from Tony Fauci, she goes on to her show and she says unequivocally that as soon as you get the COVID vaccine, and she does this reference, like puts her finger up like it's a needle, you get poked, and then you stop transmission at its tracks.
1: Yeah, I saw that. That's been circulating very recently. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, it, they, they, the right wing, you know, alt-right communities put together this clip of Fauci and her and I know it's really famous, famous little uh, uh, montage, cre- a collage created by the alt right, and nor- somehow, but it, it, it doesn't change what I said. It, it goes back to the same point that at that time um, there was a belief that vaccines, and there was reason to think that, and the evidence supported it. That that. Um, vaccines would have that beneficial effect. Should they have been dogmatic? Look, I've written several times. I wrote a piece for the Globe and Mail that said, you know, called the uncertainty dance where I argued that we've got a, the media and public health has to do a better job being honest about the uncertainty of the science. And there's research that tells <laughs> us that the public wants <laughs> to know that. And mm-hmm. there's research that tells us if you talk about the uncertainty of science, you don't lose trust. You don't gain trust by the way, but you don't lose trust, which is important. And, um, uh, you're not going to get an argument from me, right? But to say that, that, that somehow um, that is the same as the lies that have spread on social media and on, on you know, I... some of the alt-right news stations or by Peter McCullough, or, it's just not the same. It's not the same. Was it ideal science communication? No, it's not. I do not think that you should spin science for a public health goal, and I've, that's always been my position. Was my position before the pandemic, my position during the pandemic, and it's been my position after the pandemic. Uh, we have to be honest, and 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 I I I think you know one of the times where I was really kind of challenged was, uh, and, I, I've, mm-hmm. and I've talked mm-hmm. about it I brought this up in a recent public health meeting I was involved in. Is think about the AstraZeneca challenge, right? You know when AstraZeneca came out. Um, that was a real challenge because you know how mm-hmm. how do we portray this really very mm-hmm. rare risk associated with a- AstraZeneca, right, the blood clot situation, worth the incredible benefit associated with getting getting the uh, the vaccine. In fact, there's a, uh, an analysis that came out of, uh, out of the UK very recently. I'm going to say mm-hmm. like last week that where mm-hmm. researchers were arguing that how it was portrayed, you know, caused thousands and thousands of lives because it created this yep. scaremongering um and had an international phenomenon because AstraZeneca as you probably know mm-hmm. is used mm-hmm. in, in a lot of the, the developing world right so i think you always err on transparency right even in that situation you know we can think about how we're going to portray it you and and that doesn't mean you shouldn't have good science communication uh, around that but but this idea that that you know this revisionist view you know that that this clever montage of of left wing um uh, mainstream media people misrepresenting you know masks and misrepresenting you know it's it's just a cute strategy in order to try to make it sound like it's okay for them to lie (laughs) you know i don't understand what the argument is you know they lied so we can lie too i I don't understand what the argument is a i don't think that's qualitatively the same you know bad science communication is is not qualitatively the same as people lying about vaccines, effectiveness, lying about ivermectin, you know, on and on and on. You can see you got me wound up.
0: Well, yeah, I know. I, well, I, I'm also a little bit wound up and I, I know we're, we're out of time, but the, the thing that I still don't necessarily agree on is that let's take Rachel Maddow and Joe Rogan as two. But I
1: think we agree. I don't know what No, no, no. On. I
0: think we disagree on the fact that I don't think Joe Rogan is lying and I don't think Rachel Maddow's lying either. I do, however, th- believe... That they are not telling, they're telling the truth as they see it, which may be misinformation. However, I do hold legacy media at a higher standard than I hold a podcaster. And because, because I do believe that the legacy media has a collective belief from our society that they are telling the truth. And Joe, well, I can comment on that because okay. we've actually studied this. Right? Okay.
1: So, so. It, So, the legacy media, and I'm glad you're saying that instead of mainstream media. (laughs) So, the legacy media. So, there have been a a number of studies that have shown, in fact, early days, we were going to study the legacy media, and they've done not an ideal job, and I can give you examples where, you know, headlines that are Mm -hmm, less than mm -hmm, mm -hmm. fear-mongering, headlines that, you know, around um, potential harms and things like that, that have been less than ideal, but in general, um, the legacy media has done a fairly good job. In addition to that, there have been a number of studies that have shown that the legacy media—that if you get your information from the legacy media, you're less likely to be misinformed, less likely to believe misinformation, less likely to spread misinformation. Now, correlation-causation studies, so we have to be careful not to overinterpret them. If you get your information from social media, so from podcasts, mm-hmm. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, more likely to believe misinformation. Uh, more likely to be uh, spread misinformation. And, and they've also done studies in the context of right-wing media, you know, the, uh, that sort of portrayal of, you know, you, you, I'm sure you've seen those charts where you place the media mm-hmm, on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and you know, if you get your news from you know, far-right news, for, you, you can guess who I'm talking about, more likely to believe misinformation, more likely to spread misinformation. And these, and these da- there's been numerous studies on this, very, very consistent. A study just came out weeks ago, a great group from MIT found the exact same, same conclusion here right so um we have to be careful how we you know absolutely we just studied the legacy media and how they pushed false balance in the context of of um the barrington declaration so i'm the first person to critique you know (laughs) the the media i've spent you know decades studying how the mainstream media misrepresents uh science uh so first person to critique it but right if if you look at the the sources of misinformation and they're doing real harm and another study just came out days ago same conclusion this one's a preprint but lots of mm-hmm. data on this social media social media is the source of misinformation mm-hmm. joe rogan okay the legacy media joe rogan is legacy media he has Tens of millions of followers. Okay. Uh, uh, you know, that's why I think it's so funny when people go, I'm being silenced. You know, so he goes, the person goes on Tucker Carl- Carlson. I'm being silenced, the most popular, you know, cable news show. I'm yeah. yeah, yeah. They, I'm on Joe Rogan, the most popular. But, but, um, well, okay. Did, like, they have a, responsibility. But jo- they but, have a responsibility. But Joe
0: Rogan's, he's not pausing after Anderson Cooper talks to show an ad by Pfizer. And so that's a whole other conversation about conflict of interest that we don't have time for. But, because so you're looking at me like, what the hell does that have to do with anything? <laughs> but, but I'm just saying, I don't think he is the legacy media. I, I don't. So I think, do you honestly think
1: that 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 um, you know big pharma is directing the narrative on that?
0: No, I, I. But I do think that if you're to call Joe Rogan the legacy media, uh, oh well,
1: I, I, I was being a little bit hyperbolic. No, I, 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 I understand. The size I'm, of his I, I'm
0: just saying that. <laughs> he is
1: less he probably has more viewers than than tucker i mean than um uh cnn but i
0: guess uh, my my point is more so that he is less beholden to institutional legacy power structures like like the pharmaceutical companies, because if you look at the amount of money that's given to CNN in terms of advertising revenue,
1: but you just said that the legacy media was, you know, they have standards and they have, you know, a history. Um, and
0: then I didn't say they have standards. I said that they're perceived to be trustworthy by the community. I know you got to go because I, I. So we could put a pin in this because we could talk for hours about a million <laughs> different things. But Kate okay, with your, I loved your book. Um, and I want to just read the subtitle to it because I think it's extremely important. As we just have a anxiety-inducing conversation, it's a guide to everyday health decisions with more facts and less worry. If there were two takeaways that somebody listening to this could do tomorrow in order to reduce the anxiety in your their life, what would you tell them to do?
1: Um. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a, a little just. This off the top of my head. Yeah, you did yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> prime me. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, So there's my, my colleague, Gordon Pennycook. He's an experimental psychologist. He works with David Rand at, mm-hmm. at MIT. Um, one of the individuals who just came up with that big uh, uh, misinformation study I told you about. Um, they've done this really interesting research that suggests if, if you just pause, if you just take a beat, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because uh, social media is such a cha- cha- chaotic and fr- frantic space you're more likely to ap- apply critical thinking skills, less likely to spread misinformation, less likely to believe misinformation. So when you look at your phone and you feel, uh, take that beat, mm-hmm. take that mm-hmm. beat. Recommendation number two, if it makes you feel emotional,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right, do a double check, mm-hmm. right? Do a double mm-hmm. check. If you feel like it's playing to something you believe in, if it feels like it's a, it's a goal, someone just got a, your team just got a touchdown, do a double check, right? That's another thing I would recommend, and I actually try—I I try to do that last one because I think I'm guilty of that. Mm-hmm. Right? I am too. Oh, here's a study that mm-hmm. I, a study that shows mm-hmm. ivermectin didn't work. I don't even read the methods. <laughs> Let's get this baby yeah. up on my on my teeth. I always try to take a beat. Okay, I'm gonna better look at the methods. What kind of study was this? Uh, and the last thing I will say is uh, in this it fits in the same same vibe here is is to take a break at night Mm -hmm. i I try to walk away from the noise uh every night and again there is research that suggests that that helps your mental health Mm -hmm. you've Mm -hmm. probably seen some of this data right Mm -hmm. and um i i try i have a colleague i'm looking for her book um who researches this kind of stuff? And she actually puts her her phone to bed at night. Mm. Like she has a little bed oh, oh yeah, her oh phone. yeah, that's a good and idea. She actually. puts a blanket on it and she you know, tucks <laughs> it in. I love it.' Yeah. <laughs> she, a should, little ritual. she should put it
0: for a time out though every night instead of probably... <laughs> <laughs>
1: so I, I, those the, are three kinds of little strategy, you know, very simple things that we can all apply. And I try to do it. I failed.
0: no, i I, I think myself. um for being off uh, off the cuff, those are those are actually quite brilliant because i yeah. I know I'm guilty of it too, where, if you just take it's a one second to reassess your thinking and also impulsivity and emotion are killers on Twitter and social media. And I've been guilty. I've deleted so many tweets in my life because I've been like, okay, I'm going to tell Tim Caulfield what I really think about ivermectin. And then I send it, which I don't, but, and then I send it and uh, I'm like, oh, I better delete that. Cause I don't really know anything about ivermectin. Anyways, I know you got to go. I'd love to talk to you some more. Um, your book, I think everybody should read because it's a easy to digest walkthrough of your day and all of the different interruptions that will cause anxiety in your life if you don't understand the science that that undergirds those decisions that you make and how you can make better decisions. So so thank you for your time. I love the conversation.
1: <laughs> Thanks so much, Mark. And I really enjoyed our conversation. I love this stuff. Um, and so thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it.